Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Kevin Townley. I know, just like say something really shocking, and then when I go, <gasps> you stick your dick in my mouth. <laughs> that and more. But first, the next Risk live stream is on Friday, April 16th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern with Oz de Soleil, Kent Whipple, Freddie Mae Abisamra, Hannah Sussman, and me. Tickets are at risk-show.com slash tour. You gotta be there. This is gonna be a hell of a show. That's a hell of a lineup. And we are still knocking it out of the park with these incredible Risk live stream shows. So again, that is April 16th, 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Tickets are at risk-show.com slash tour. Also, the latest bit of Patreon bonus content will be me doing a little bit of a check-in. <laughs> I was supposed to do it this past weekend, but so much going on. Uh, listen, over at Patreon, there is so much bonus content at this point that you could keep yourself busy for a long, long time. <laughs> so your donations over there are incredibly necessary and we are incredibly grateful for them in order to help keep this show running. And this week, I have to give a little shout out to Maddie D. We give a shout out to anyone who's given $25 or more per month. We are so grateful. And if you'd like to make a one-time donation, that is at paypal.me slash risk show. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Room 34 behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode Baby Gaze. <laughs> I had put these three stories together for this episode without it even occurring to me that they're all LGBTQ stories of early forays into uh, the realm and uh, so, yeah, I thought it would be funny and cute to call it baby gaze. Folks, I can't tell you how much teaching storytelling means to us here at the show, not just with the people who were helping prepare to do the show, but in all of the classes that we do, I was just thinking this weekend, what, what a profound part of all of our lives that faculty members here and myself of teaching storytelling because it's so much like listening to the show working with people on their stories becomes a very important part of your own growth journey as a teacher and it's certainly that way for our students as well so i can't encourage you enough to go to the storystudio.org you're going to find so many opportunities there now in april we're having a two-day level one live online group storytelling workshop with brian kett i am so excited to have Brian on the team. He is such a phenomenal storyteller, such a wonderful guy, and a great teacher too. So he's been such a great discovery for us. And the Story Studio teaches corporate workshops too. And businesses just love our workshops. And that is all to be found at thestorystudio.org. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Cheddar Galloway. He shared a remarkable story at a recent Risk live stream. But before that, we're going all the way back to 2014. Kevin Townley shared this story at a Risk live show in New York City at the People's Improv Theater, a theater that, because of the pandemic, doesn't even exist anymore. 
Kevin is an actor based in New York City, and uh, this is just so fun to dig into the vaults and and bring this back. You can find Kevin on Instagram at Kevin Townley Jr. And here he is now with a story we call Second Opinion. So, I was incredibly, incredibly, incredibly very broke, as opposed to now when I'm just broke. Um, it was several years ago, and uh, it was Christmas time, and I could not afford to go back home to Colorado to see my family. I just couldn't afford it. Uh, but a friend of mine who could afford to go home for Christmas asked if I would like to maybe take his shift, his retail shift for the Christmas season. And I was very grateful for the opportunity to make some money. And I said, yes, gladly, I'll take that. So I wound up with the 7 p.m. to 4 a.m. shift at the Pink Pussycat erotic equipment store on West 4th Street. It's still there. It's been there for ages. It's a cornerstone of uh, New York real estate. It's an odd place because I don't know, I actually don't know why it's been there that long. It's not like it's like the greatest place to get dildos. It's kind of like a dumpy, weird place with slightly irregular, it's kind of like the Woodbury Commons of porn stores. Slightly irregular dildos and shades that seem like, you know, if it was a real penis, you make the most of it, but if you're going out to buy something, you wouldn't pick that shade or like <laughs> that shape. It was just a little too big or had weird nubs on it. Who wants it? Or like picked over like dirty movies with like pictures of like people who look like genital hoarders. It's just like too many things going on. Anyway, so this is where I worked uh, from 7 p.m. to 4 a.m. And uh, I worked the shift with the same young man every, every shift. So we started to get to know each other a little bit. Very nice, very cute. His name was Jamie. He was 21. I was 25 at the time. Uh, I don't know. Usually, I am really terrible at telling if somebody is interested in me. Like, usually, you need to be inserted into some orifice before my... Oh, so we're seeing each other now. <laughs> I, I get it. But I could sort of tell that he was interested. He just sort of always kind of like followed me. It wasn't that small of a store. Uh, but he was always like right underfoot or like rubbing up against me like a cat that wants to be fed. And he would always talk about this problem that he had. He's like, oh, I just have this really big problem and I just don't know what to do about it. I feel like I've waited too long to do this. And now maybe maybe it's too late for me. I'm like, what, what's wrong? Are you, are you terminally ill? He's like, no, I... I just, I'm, I'm a virgin. I, I've never had sex before, and I'm 21. I'm like, well, honey, luckily it's not the Bronze Age, so you may well make it till your 40s, and you could still make it happen. It's possible. He was like, I know, but it's just so hard to find people that you can trust. I was like, wait, no, 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 no. Wait, so, wait, no, you've never, no, no, nothing? You've never done anything? He's like, no, no, no. Like, yeah, he, hadn't, he hadn't even ordered a la carte off the menu. He had women, men, nothing. He had not, he had maybe held some hands once or kissed somebody, but that was it. And so then he kept talking about trustworthiness and how it's hard to trust people in this day and age and how trustworthy I seemed. And I don't know if that was because I would have sort of like a professorial demeanor. <laughs> I don't know. I seem like an authority on something. But uh, I felt like he was coming on to me. So I told my friend, I was like, well, there's this really cute guy at work, if you can call it that. And he wants, I think, me to be his first. My friend was like, no, 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 no. Absolutely not. Because listen, there are two kinds of virgins. One is the kind that you have sex with and they realize what they've been missing out on for the past 21 years and then they want to try it out all over town or they have sex with you and then they're in love with you and you can't shake them. Those are the two kinds. And I was, I had to admit he had a point. And you see, either way, most of my relationships up to that point had been 
notably forgettable. And whether a virgin ditches you or falls in love with you, one thing remains that you are their first, so they always remember you. And I've, I have always felt much more comfortable being forgotten. I did not want that responsibility. So I decided, you're absolutely right, I'm not doing this. Plus, I had just gotten out of this relationship with this guy who was an understudy in Phantom of the Opera. And I, I had to sit through that shit five times. And I don't know if that was what it was or the fact that he couldn't keep it in his pants. I, either way, I was not ready to get involved again. Forget it. So, but the thing about working the late shift, sometimes we get out early and the bars would still be open and we have cocktails and then he was doing some more of his purring and next thing I knew we were at his house and we kind of like made out and then we would make out a little bit more and then uh, about, at, you know, two weeks into it I had given him a blowjob and uh, he, he was like, all right, well, I, I just... I just don't, he looked very forlorn. And I was like, don't, why are you looking sad? A, a blowjob is a wonderful thing. <laughs> a little blowjob never hurt, well, and a little blowjob between consenting adults never hurt anybody. Uh, you know, and he's like, I know, I just, I just feel really bad because this is kind of moving fast and I just don't know, I, I feel like I should reciprocate. I was like, well, you could. And he was like, but I just feel like I'm not ready to do that. And it's, th I was like, look, Rome wasn't built in a day. This is your virginity. You do it your way. Build, your, build it your, your own way. And so we'll take it really slow. And if you don't want to, you, no pressure. I mean, I'm not like, it's fine. I mean, I'd appreciate it, but no biggie. So... A couple of days later, he was like, okay, well, we're going to do that. I'm going to do it. Tonight's the night. I was like, all right, fair enough. He was like, just, will you turn all the lights out? And I was like, okay, all right. So I turned the lights out, and he's like, oh, and could you also pull the blinds down and then close the curtains over? And I was like, all right, well, it's, it's, I had noticed one thing, which is that, like, for some reason, sexually, like, curious guys tend to be interested in me, and I think that the reason why is that I like seem pleasant and like uh, non-threatening and maybe that somehow in their mind is like a nice segue from women to men. And yet the fact remains that I'm a man, folks. I have a penis and, well, I, uh, that's not too much information. And I do. And I also have like... <laughs> hair on my chest and so I feel like they like expect that because my like personality is soft that I'm going to be like some sort of electrolyzed like mannequin she-male and then I take my clothes off and they're like oh well <laughs> you didn't tell me that and so I just really don't need somebody else to corroborate my own worst fears about my body so I try you know to avoid those situations but here I was in another one in the pitch dark and I was like well I'll, you know I'll do my best to find your face and um, so whenever I would kind of like get in the neighborhood of his mouth, he would like t turn away. And I was like, this isn't silly. You know, we don't have to do this. Maybe we'll try next week. Like, no, 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 no. We've got to do it now or never. It's stupid. Let's do it. I was like, okay. So I'd try and he, uh, turning his head away like, like you know, um, anyway. So then, uh, so then he was like, I know. Just like say something really shocking. And then when I go, <gasps> you stick your dick in my mouth. <laughs> I was like, I'm not doing that. Are you insane? I'm not sticking. No, I'm not. For, just, I'm not doing this. He was like, no, no, no. All right. On the count of three, do it. So I counted to three. One, two, three. I stuck my dick in his mouth and he burst into tears. I just felt terrible. I was like, oh, honey, I'm sorry. I just, uh, it's not, we won't ever do it again. Forget it. So he's like, no, it's really fine. It's just that I guess I had this little corner in my mind that thought the first time I would have sex or oral sex would be with a woman, which would mean that there was like this sort of like cul-de-sac of opportunity to be straight or at least bi. But now I don't know what I am. I was like, well, I have a couple of ideas. <laughs> so... So all of a sudden, we were kind of dating. And then, you know, as is often the case, if history has taught us anything, it's that sexual curiosity trumps existential crisis. And we ended up having sex. And uh, as we lay there in bed, he looked at me with his ASPCA poster eyes, and he was like, you know, I think, 
I think I love you. And I was like, oh, oh, well, I admire your honesty. I esteem you so much for finding strength and vulnerability. He's like, what are you saying? What, don't you love me too? I was like, I don't, I'm emotionally retarded. Which is a great answer, by the way. Feel free to use it. But the truth of the matter was, I didn't know if I wanted this kind of responsibility. Uh, and I kept thinking, like, you're going to be remembered. You're going to be remembered for this. And so we kept seeing each other. And the other fact of the matter was that he was kind of annoying for the same reason that he was really beautiful, which was that he was young and fresh and open to life. As Margaret Atwood said, even ugly children are beautiful because they're young. And so he... So he would just, I don't know, he didn't understand yet that a conversation is not a series of monologues. You know, every time, every evening felt like a middle school production of the Spoon River Anthology. Just talk, 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 talk. Now it's your turn to talk. Or, you know, like if I ask you, have you ever been to Mexico? Uh, you know, you tell me, I, I went to Mexico, it was great. You don't drink the water, so on and so forth. Have you ever been to Mexico? Well, I know I haven't, but I hear there's a lovely meditation center there of all places. You know, he never asked me if I wanted to go to Mexico. Second of all, he would just make sweepingly absurd generalizations like, I hate fiction. What do you mean you hate fiction? need some writer to take three paragraphs to tell me what the girl's hair looks like. I know what hair looks like. I have my own imaginations with stories inside of my own head, and I don't need some writer to tell me what hair looks like. I was like, that is a stupid thing to say. You calling me stupid? No, I'm saying that is a stupid thing to say, because how can you just make that sweeping generalization? Well, you're saying you're smarter than me. I'm smarter than you. I was like, look, I've never dated anyone who was smarter than me, and I don't plan on starting now. Thank you very much. So it was getting a little rocky. There were some chinks in the permafrost and uh, there was trouble on the horizon. Well, anyway, one evening we were sitting at his place watching Roman Holiday eating rainbow sherbet. And he got up to go to the restroom. And from the restroom, I hear him say, it hurts when I pee. I was like, you eat too much rainbow sherbet. You got sugar in your system and you gave yourself a urinary tract infection. We're going right out to the CVS and I'm getting you some cranberry pills or some juice, but you have got to really rein it in. He's like, okay, so we got it. Well, the next day, he didn't feel any better. As a matter of fact, the fact that it hurt when he peed was followed by an unpleasant, unsightly yellow discharge. I was shocked. I was like, how, what, what could this possibly be? I, I don't know. I don't know. He's like, well, could you call? Do you have a, do a doctor? I was like, no, do you? He's like, no, we both work at a porn shop. <laughs> so I had, did know this nurse practitioner who I would kind of see on the sly who let me like come in after hours. <laughs> she was very nice. And I called her. I was like, well, this guy that I'm seeing, he, I think he has a urinary tract infection. when he, It hurts when he pees and there's an unsightly yellow discharge. And she said, that ain't no urinary tract infection. <laughs> Sister friend has the clap. I was like, well, that's not possible because I don't have the clap. She's like, yes, you do. I was like, how do I have the clap? I don't have symptoms. She's like, well, 80% of men don't have symptoms from the clap. It's sort of the phantom STD. The phantom! <laughs> Son of a bitch. Well, what do I do? I said, well, you've got to take him to Bellevue Emergency Room. They'll see him on a sliding scale, $10. He'll get a shot and some pills. You get it taken care of. But you have to be treated too. I will see you tomorrow at 5 p.m. So I hung up the phone and he's like, well, what did she say? And I was like, well, there's some good news and some bad news. The good news is it's treatable. The bad news is it's gonorrhea and chlamydia together. They kind of go together like the Q and U in the <laughs> So, he, I mean, his face just completely fell. He was like, 
What do you mean I have an STD? I waited 21 years to have sex, and now I have the clap? How is that possible? I was like, I don't know. I think this guy that had it, and I didn't know. And of course, if I had known, I would have taken every precaution. I'm so sorry and embarrassed if there's any cost. I will incur it. Come with me to the emergency room. I promise we'll take care of this. I'm really mortified. I mean, I've never had an STD either. This is terrible, terrible, terrible. So he's like, oh, let's just get it taken care of. Just fix it, fix it. So I take him to Bellevue, and we're waiting online, and the man, uh, the intake man, comes by with a clipboard. He takes his name. He's like, age, 21. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. You're in the wrong line. If you're under the age of 25 years old, you've got to go to the pediatric ER just down the hall and up the elevator. I was like, so we go and sit down. in tiny, tiny blue chairs in a room with a mural of an enchanted forest painted on the wall with Barney playing on the video screen, little Andy and Jenny with their runny noses, and Jamie with his runny dick. I was like, can I get you a milkshake? anything he's like just I just want to get this taken care of so he goes the doctor sees him and I'm sitting there and I'm like you know what this of course this is terrible and embarrassing but maybe the reason why this was annoying was because we hadn't had any history together we didn't like really been through anything together we hadn't experienced the vicissitudes of life And now, for better or for worse, we've been through or going through this ordeal and we will come out the other end. And it kind of like brings you closer together. I don't know, I just felt kind of touched even though I felt terrible. I felt touched that I could like be both the perpetrator of this wrong, but also the support network that was waiting for him. And he came out of the doctor's office and I kind of like chuckled to myself at the ridiculousness of the situation. And he was like, well, it was the clap. He gave me a shot and I have to take these two pills, but the worst is over. I was like, see, that is the right attitude. The worst is over. He's like, you're right. It really is, because I'm never going to have sex again. I was like, I know you feel that way now, but that's ridiculous. Of course you will one day. He's like, that's true. One day I will, but not with you. In fact, you've helped me realize that I'm not actually gay. In fact, you know, I think I actually am straight, so I owe you a debt of gratitude. I was like, what are you talking about? But I put my, and you did the... Uh, you're not straight. I was like, he's like, well, I don't know. Maybe it's too soon for me to decide. But one thing I know is I can't ever see you again. Because you know how I was telling you how my stepfather used to beat my mother? Well, even if he stopped, I would still always associate domestic violence with my stepfather, so I couldn't possibly like him. So in the same way, if I ever saw you, I would always associate your face with a burning sensation when I urinated. (laughs) What's the matter? Why are you taking this so personally? Look at the bright side. At least you don't have to buy me a birthday present. He walked off, and I burst into tears. I was completely mortified. And then I remembered I had a doctor's appointment of my own. So I went to the nurse practitioner who looked in my throat and gave me the test, which is like putting a spiky Q-tip into your urethra. She was like... I think it's pretty clear that you have it in your throat, but we do need a second opinion. Unfortunately, the doctor is uh, away. The only doctor on duty right now uh, is a pediatrician. I hope that's okay with you. You've got to be fucking kidding me. It's fine. He's a doctor, right? She's like, oh, yeah, he's great. He's really great with kids. So I came in. And he had me sit up on the little uh, counter, and he was wearing this Hawaiian shirt with this googly eyed sticker on his lapel, and he's like, so, looks like someone's gotten themselves into a little bit of trouble. I was like, well, I guess I did. He's like, well, 
you know, you're a grown up now. You are all grown up and you need to take responsibility for your actions. You know, as an adult, you have to ask yourself, now is that the kind of penis I want to put in my body? So what you've got to do is, and he took the pen out of his lapel and he said, you've got to take that penis in your fingers and you'll start at the bottom of the shaft and you lick right up that shaft until you get to the top of that penis and you look right down on it, give it a little sniff and if it smells untoward, don't you put that in your mouth. (laughs) And I looked over at the nurse practitioner who was leaning against the door and she said, which means you gotta leave the lights on. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'll never forget where I was when I first heard these words. Hey man, all faggots get off the bus first. Didn't you hear what I said? All faggots get off the bus first. It was 1984 and I was a freshman in high school. And I was pretty excited because I was going to the same school where my brothers and sisters had attended. And as a matter of fact, was going to have some of the same teachers. So I was pretty familiar with the bus schedule and when it was going to come by to pick me up. So that first day, you know, I'm all eager with excitement as I'm making my way to the bus stop. It comes right on time, around 7.15, and door opens and I walk up the steps. I walk down the aisle and I look and it's pretty full, but I do see a seat with one person in it. So I go over there and try to sit down and the person immediately says, "Uh uh-uh, you can't sit here. Which surprised me a bit. And I went a little further to someone else who I saw was sitting by themselves and they said, "Uh uh-uh, this seat's taken. I was getting worried now because, you know, this certainly wasn't what I expected on, and nonetheless, on my first day of school. But then I saw a neighbor of mine from the subdivision behind my house who finally switched seats with someone so that I could sit down. Now, as far as I had known, there had never been any trouble with my brothers and sisters riding the bus when they were in school, but I always had a problem. Now, true, I was at the last stop before we went on into school for the 20-minute drive, and the bus was pretty full, but mainly, many of the kids on the bus suspected that I was gay and um, took it out and started teasing me. It wasn't that I was necessarily overly effeminate acting or anything. I was just pretty much an awkward teenager in the late stages of puberty, You know, although I pretended to like girls, I pretty much knew that I was into boys and tried to keep it hidden and under wraps. But it was like the bullies on the bus knew about it and thought that maybe, well, they're going to catch a gay gene if they sit beside me. Or worse yet, somebody might think I'm dating one of the boys if I sit down beside them on the bus. But that wasn't just the only reason why they teased me. You see, my father was a self-employed brick mason who done very well for us. We lived in a nice middle-class neighborhood and a brick ranch home. And um, many of the people I rode the bus with lived in a different part of town, you know, where they were living in uh, public housing or uh, substandard situations and decided to take out their frustrations with that on me. I never said anything because You know, I knew this could easily escalate into an altercation or perhaps something, you know, much worse. So I didn't say anything about it. And one of the disadvantages I had during this whole situation is that whereas many of the kids in the neighborhood behind me were picked up at a um, intersection or a bus stop, I was picked up directly across the street from my house. So the bullies had full view of where I lived when I got on the bus. So every day I got on the bus, I was always facing two questions looming overhead as this fear and anxiety was building up in me. One, am I going to get a seat? 
And two, how much am I going to be teased today when I get on the bus? So I'd make that long walk and when the bus came, you know, go up and walk down the aisle and with each preceding step, you know, getting more and more anxious and I'm worried. I don't know if it would be considered a panic attack, but it sure was close. Now, I did have friends and neighbors in, uh, who rode the bus with me, and though none of them came to my defense verbally, and I'm not blaming them in any way, you know, I figured, like me, that they probably were scared for retaliation against someone I'll call the head bully in charge, a guy named Gary. Now, Gary had a bit of a reputation. He'd actually been suspended from school for fighting with a teacher. And he always treated the bus like his personal limousine and his loyal subjects flocked behind him like the, he was a Pied Piper. When I say Pied Piper, he always brought this tricked out boombox to school. It was one of those that separated into three parts. You know, I guess the handheld ones were not good enough for a bully of his stature. He always played rap music on it because this is when rap music was in its infancy and starting to grow in the early 80s. And the song he played was by one of the most popular rap groups at the time, Houdini. And to this day, every time I hear that song, it takes me back to that bus ride with Gary playing. And the song went like this. Friends, how many of us have them? Friends. The ones we can depend on, friends. How many of us have them? And as this song was looping and playing over and over again, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, well, apparently, I must have none. I remember one day getting on the bus and it was a particular cold snap. And I'd worn this new jacket I bought with the money I'd made from working with my dad because contrary to what the bullies thought about me, I didn't get an allowance. I had to work for everything I earned and spent as a teenager. And I'd worked weekends with my dad and saved up money to buy this white bomber jacket. It was, um, it was a jacket that had a thick insulation, these funky zippers going up and down it and it had a furred hood. So I wore it to stay to school because it was cold, not thinking much of it. But when I got on the bus, I saw that there was a seat available, but it was right in front of Gary and his crew. So they were eyeing me as I'm coming down the aisle and getting ready to sit down. As soon as I sat down, I heard about it. One of them said, mm, look like somebody got them a new jacket. Another one said, yeah, it's supposed to be a white jacket, but it looked beige if you ask me. And another one said, nah, 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 man, it's just dingy and dirty. Look at that. I can't believe he bought that with that fake fur on that hood. And all of them had a big laugh about it at my expense as we were heading to school. As I sat there, you know, I was very humiliated and near tears, but knew if I cried, that they would use that later for ammunition. So needless to say, after that first day of wearing that jacket and when I got back home, I put it in my closet and uh, never wore it again. Well, a few weeks would pass and I'll remember getting on the bus this particular day, you know, getting ready for school and doing my Last mile walk, I would call it, down my driveway, crossing the street, and waiting for the bus to come. This speech is my recital. Came as usual, rush sharp at 7.15. I think it's very vital. And I started boarding and looked down the aisle. And much to my dismay, I kid you not, the bus was like 99% full. There wasn't a seat I could see in place anywhere. I'm starting to walk with trepidation down the aisle and looking to see if there's anywhere to sit. And I do. There's one spot. But it's in a seat beside one of Gary's bullies. It's tricky, 
And as I made my way over there and got close to the seat in motion like I was going to get there, the young lady who was sitting there said, uh-uh, don't sit beside me. Well, by this time, I had bowed head it. Because over the course of this semester, I had been taken from a range of feelings and emotions from excitement to fear, anxiety, humiliation. And now at this point, seeing that, you know, this bus was full, there are no seats anywhere. I'm at the point of piss the fuck off rage. So I raised my voice and said, look, I got a right to ride this bus like anybody else. And I'm going to sit in this seat today, whether you like it or not. So I pushed my way past the young got in the seat and slid over to the window. And that's when Gary and his um, gang really went in. Someone said, ooh, that thing sat down with authority today. She sure do got an attitude. Who does she think she is? That's when the girl I was sitting beside looked me up and down and said, yeah, I don't know who she thinks she is. And mind you, this is a time when the use of a pronoun like she towards a guy was not meant as a term of endearment and certainly wasn't flattering. So they continued teasing me with the slurs getting worse as we made our way to school. Well, upon arrival, um, the kids started disembarking from the bus. And I'm sitting there still looking out the window, listening to what Gary and his friends are saying behind me when one of them says, hey, hey, I got an idea. Why don't we let all the faggots get off the bus first? And from the reflection in the window, I could see they were looking in my direction. And then they directed it to me verbally and said, hey man, didn't you hear? All faggots get off the bus first. Why didn't move? Go ahead now, man. All faggots get off the bus first. Well, by this time, the bus was pretty much empty, except for me and Gary's crew. And that's when the bus driver, thankfully grew a pair of balls, finally said, look, when I come back from inside at the school, you all had better be off this bus or every one of you is going to be suspended. I wasn't too worried about being suspended at this point because I knew my sisters commuted to college so they could drop me off in the morning to school. But Gary and his friends, I'm sure, didn't have that option available for them. But they still continue saying, go ahead, man, get off the bus, all faggots off the bus. Well, I still refused to move. Well, I was looking out the window and I could see that the bus driver had finished whatever he was doing inside the school and making his way back to the bus. And apparently, one of Gary's friends saw this too, because he said, hey, 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 man, I, I, I gotta go, I, I, I gotta go, I, I gotta go, I can't, I can't, I can't get suspended, man, I gotta go, I gotta go. So all it took was him to be broken. And then one by one, each of them started filing out from the back of the bus but not without taking some parting shots at me before they left, and even one of them smacking the back of my seat before they went on down and got off the bus. But when I looked around and saw that everybody had gone, I gathered my books, walked down, and as I was exiting off the last step, I almost ran directly into the bus driver. Well, that was the last day I ever had any trouble with Gary and his friends. And the last day I ever had any trouble finding a seat on the bus. And although I see them around school and we'd exchange evil looks, never said anything to them. But you know, I have to admit, there is one question that was burning in my mind I wanted to ask him. Hey, man. Who's the faggot now, bitch? Jam on me. Thank you. Jerry <laughs> Galloway, everyone.
risk this is cool modi behind me now jesus what a trip down memory lane the music in that story was john lasala did the editing there and cheddar galloway is the fellow who told the story at our i think it was our last risk live stream show you can find him at cheddargalloway.com that's c-h-e-t-t-e-r Galloway.com. Folks, have you ever wanted to share an anecdote on the show, one of those super short stories that focus mostly just on one incident? Well, now everything you need to know about pitching us your anecdotes is at risk-show.com slash anecdotes. Super, super helpful page we've added to our website, risk-show.com slash anecdotes. All you need to know is there. And don't forget this limited edition Kevin Allison Risk enamel pin that was made by the wonderful people at bearandbird.com. You can find it at bearandbird.com slash risk pin. It is adorable. It's a little cartoon me. Our wonderful friend Amanda at Baron Bird Gallery, which is also their Instagram handle at Baron Bird Gallery. Uh, she made it happen, and there's a very limited amount, so go get them. They're so cute. And, of course, more merchandise is available at risk-show.com slash shop. We've got 15% off everything there from April 14th through the 18th. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Our final story on this week's episode. It's such a treat to finally be able to share it with you. This was supposed to be shared at the Reno, Nevada show that we had to cancel, even though I had flown out to Reno in mid-March of 2020. You know, the pandemic hit and we had to cancel the show. I had to fly back to New York and go into quarantine, and that was the beginning of it all. But we finally got Auntie Vice to come on to our live stream and tell this story there instead. You can find Auntie Vice at AuntieVice.com. You can find her on pretty much all of social media at Auntie Vice. And here she is now with a story we call 
from Yanni to Yoni. How you like me now? How many men and how many women have you slept with? That's always the question I get. It doesn't matter if I'm lecturing in a human sexuality course, if I'm talking to a reporter, or if I'm on a date. It's always the question. Because when you're bisexual, that's the way people understand your sexuality. If you sleep with too many people who are of a different gender than you, then you're really just heterosexual and doing it for a lesbian until graduation or to please your guy or something. If you sleep with too many people of the same gender, then you're a lesbian who's just afraid to come out. That's all it is. So you learn to answer. About the same number of men as women. About the same number of men as women. It was the answer that I was great at giving without any thought by the time I got to college. I had come out my freshman year of high school, found the gay community. This was my home. These were my people. But to validate my gay identity, they had to believe that I slept with the same number of men as I had women. The thing is, that I hadn't told anybody until tonight is, until my junior year of college, I had not made my lesbian debut. So I'd been telling all these people, same number of men and women, no, I'd slept with men, but I had not debuted with women. <laughs> and being very much in the LGBT organizing groups at UC Davis, I knew my cover was going to be blown sooner or later. This is my junior year. If I don't get some pussy soon, somebody's going to rat me out. Mm. And I would lose my legitimacy in the LGBTQ community. So I'm organizing Gay Pride Week because it's 93 and we only got a week, not a month. <laughs> and it's at the end of the week dance and I've organized at a local gay bar and I'm checking on the DJ and checking ticket sales and I notice this woman checking me out. And her name is Susan. And I knew who she was because she had already slept with a lot of my lesbian friends. <laughs> she was a hub in the lesbian spoken wheel diagrams. <laughs> and Susan was super cute. She's 5'2". She's got the long blonde hair, you know, little tight waist. And that night she's wearing the jean jumpers with the little skirt and a little white tank top underneath and her pink kids, like femme finest 1993. So I go over and I introduce myself and we talk for a minute. She says, I know you're really busy, but I'd love to take you out on a date. And we exchange numbers. And I go home that night ecstatic because it is the one and only time I have ever gotten a woman's number in a bar. Mm -hmm. Like I have no game with women, a lot of game with dude, no game with women still. So I go home a couple days later. She calls me, says, I want to take you on a date. Would you like to go to a concert? I'm like, yeah. Who are we going to go see? And she says, I got these tickets to Yanni. <laughs> now, I don't know who Yanni is, and I'm really afraid it's like some underground lesbian group thing that if I don't know, I'm not going to get the cool points for. <laughs> for those of you in that same boat, Yanni is what happens is the Trans-Siberian Orchestra fuck a Greek yogurt during a Pink Floyd laser show. <laughs> it's a mess. But I didn't know this. I said, yeah. Night of the date comes, and I'm getting into my, my butch lesbian finest, right? Circa 1993. I have on the black pleated slacks, the button-up vest with just a black bra underneath, my three eyelet docks, and my hair's all slicked back, and rocking my butch finest. And Susan shows up. She had her nails done. She has, like, two-inch pink acrylics, which should have been a red flag, but wasn't. <laughs> and she's wearing a denim skirt and a little pink top and still the kids. So we get in the car and we're driving into Sacramento to go to this concert. And she says, oh, by the way, I originally was going to go to this concert with my mom. So we're going to pick her up <laughs> because bringing a parent on a first date is a thing, right? <laughs> Which is really awkward. So we pick up her mom. We go to the Yanni concert. We're sitting in partially obscured view seats in the nosebleed. And she and her mom are losing their mind. <laughs> and I'm just trying to take that in, right? Clearly, not my thing. Concert finishes, and they're talking about how wonderful she is. I still think I have a chance of getting laid, so I'm saying, yeah, he's great, and lying through my teeth. <laughs> and we go to drop her mom off, and her mom says, hey, 
why don't you guys come in for a minute? And she accepts. So I go into her mom's house in Sacramento, and it's this floral couch from the 1970s, still covered in plastic, <laughs> and offers to make us fondue, which ends up being microwaved Velveeta cheese and cut up Wonder Bread. As I make this very awkward conversation with a woman whose daughter, my only goal at this point is to get home and bone her. <laughs> like, I know this is not a love connection between country western in the car and Yanni and mom on the first date. Like, <laughs> but I've put in my time. I think at this point, I'm going to get something out of it, right? So we finally extricate from her mother's place, go back to my apartment, and I invite her in and with true 1993 lesbian etiquette, I go, would you like a cup of tea? And I have all of my teas there, you know, and I make her a cup of tea and we sit on the couch. And there wasn't a lot of examples of lesbian couples in any of the media you could find at this point. So I knew being the more butch one, it was incumbent upon me to make the first move. So I do. And I lean in and I kiss her and she tastes like, flavored chapstick and she smells like that raspberry body spray from Victoria's Secret and it's great and I start kissing down her neck and over the top of her cleavage and I get the pink tank top off and she's wearing a pink lace Victoria's Secret bra and she has these perfect 21 year old C cups and I'm a tit girl to this day I'm a tit girl if I don't have somebody else's I'll play with my own and here are 21-year-old C-cups that are all mine to play with. And I get her bra off and I don't fumble it because while I take mine off all the time, I don't have a lot of experience at this point taking off other people's. <laughs> and I get down and I'm kissing over her belly and to her hips. And I get her skirt off and she's wearing the matching panties, which might have well be an umpire waving me to run home. <laughs> and I get the pink panties off and... Thank God this was pre-waxing because there's this full bush of blonde hair and she smells so good and so earthy. And at this point, I'm totally winging it, right? I'm doing to her what I know I like it when people do to me further than I've ever been with a woman at this point. So I'm kissing and I kiss and I start fingering her and I find the clit because it's not the unsubscribe button from Amazon Prime. <laughs> and I start working her clit over and she's moaning and getting into it. And I, I work my fingers into her, and she's wet. And then I take the plunge, and I go down to eat her out, and I'm eating her out, and I can feel her fingers in my hair, and she's really getting into it. And she arches her back, and, and she comes, and I'm like, pretty damn good for a first time. <laughs> and when we're done, I lay there on her stomach, and she didn't return the favor, but at this point, I'd only slept with men under 25, so that wasn't unusual for a date. <laughs> and she's getting ready to go, and I know this is not a love connection, but I finally made my lesbian debut, which was the point of this whole thing for me. And she goes to leave and says, call me. And I say, of course I will, and totally lie. And over the next several weeks, I ghost her, which was much easier to do pre-cell phone and pre-social media. <laughs> Right. I just have the home phone that I share with like my four other roommates. So it's always busy or going to voicemail and <laughs> I dodge her on campus and she responds then by leaving strange gifts at my house. Mm. Those fake roses you buy from the gas station or I come home one day and there's a teddy bear with a giant blue dildo in it and it's <laughs> awkward and uncomfortable and these love notes and I have nobody I can tell really what's going on because they think I've slept with as many men as I've slept with women. And if I out myself as not having done that, I lose my legitimacy in the group that is my family. And eventually she graduated at the end of the year and I didn't have to worry about it. The last time I saw her was two years later and it's at the Saturday night party in the Castro before gay pride. And she was there very drunk. She starts chasing me down this Castro screaming, why don't you love me? Why couldn't you love me? And I dive into a sex shop and like hide in the dildo section and avoid her. <laughs> and for years, I felt really bad, right? This is a really shitty thing to do to this woman, right? I hit it and quit it and ghosted her. And she had no idea why. And I felt really bad for what I had done for the longest time. And then two years ago, 
I started a podcast and I interview a lot of queer folk. And I realized what I thought was unique to my story is actually very common to the bi experience. Mm. Everybody I talk to on my show who's bi mentions justifying their sexuality to other people by talking about who they've slept with. Mm-hmm. If a friend on there, she's a comic, we were talking, she comes out as bi in her act on stage. And one night, some guy heckled her and said, well, prove it. And so she goes, hey, if your mom and dad are here, I'll fuck them both. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, gets a big laugh, but it's really cringy, right? If you're bi. I was talking to another woman. She's a musician. Her husband is a fairly well-known musician. They're both bi. But because they're married and that disappears, their queerness disappears because they're in a, a different gendered couple, when they're out in public, they make sure to flirt with people of the same genders to justify their queerness to other people. And it sucks. Like being bi, it's the only sexual orientation where being a hoe is actually a good thing. <laughs> it's the way people relate. And it still comes up. Like, when I was married to a woman, not a problem. Like, I felt very comfortable in the gay community because, you know, I had a chick on my hip. Now that I'm with a man, I still feel a need to kind of justify it, to prove my commitment, despite 30 years of activism in the queer community, to still kind of prove that to people. And when I realized that, I started looking for other ways to figure out how to tell people I'm gay. And then it hit me. Last summer when I had to schedule surgery... I was sitting in the armchair in my living room with my legs kicked up over the edge, drinking a nice coffee, and I checked whether or not mercury was in retrograde before I booked my surgery. And I figured that's about as queer as it gets. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Auntie Vice, everyone! <laughs> When I was a young girl like normal girls do I looked to a woman's love to help get me through I never needed any more than a feminine touch I hated the thought of kissing a man It really was too much I did not drink, I did not smoke I did not say goddamn I was polite Last ten dollars on birth control and beer My life was so much simpler when I was sober and queer But the love of a strong hairy man has turned my head out of fear And made me spend my last ten bucks on birth control and beer That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Two Nice Girls Behind Me Now. You could not enter a lesbian bar in the 90s and not hear this song without the entire bar singing along to it. So a lot of musical memories on this episode. I asked Auntie Vice, you know, what might follow her story. She said, you could play Yanni. I was like, no, no, we will not. We will we will play anything but Yanni. Folks, just to remind you, the next Risk live stream show is Friday, April 16th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Tickets are at risk-show.com slash tour. You can follow us on our socials. We're at Risk Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. The Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook is a great place to talk about the podcast with fellow fans, as is our subreddit at Risk Podcast. And folks, did you know you can hire me personally for storytelling training? I'm currently helping someone with a memoir, someone with a podcast, someone with a job interview process they're going through. You can find me at kevinallison.com. 
And a super sweet and really fun gift to give someone is one of my personalized little video greetings that I make over on Cameo. Just go to cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I spent my last $10 on birth control and beer. My life was so much simpler when I was sober and queer. But the love of a strong, hairy man has turned my head out of fear and made me spend my last ten bucks on birth control and beer. I spent my last ten dollars on birth control and beer. My life was so much simpler when I was sober and queer. But the love of a strong, hairy Another Friday is upon us. What'll you be doing, Smithers? Something gay, no doubt. Wh- what? You know, light-hearted, fancy-free. Mothers, lock up your daughters. Smithers is on the town. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, sir. <laughs> Smithers, there's a rocket in my pocket. You don't have to tell me, sir. Smithers, take off my belt. With pleasure, sir. <laughs> no one will want to kiss me after these, eh, Smithies? Well, it's their loss, sir. <laughs> yes. People like dogs, Mr. Burns. Nonsense. Dogs are idiots. Think about it, Smithies. If I came into your house and started sniffing at your crotch and slobbering all over your face, what would you say? Mm. If you did it, sir. <laughs>